For August 27th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 530. The first Sharknado was much more serious. And welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I am Pete Fenzel, and Matt Rather is not with us tonight because our topic for this evening is either beneath him or spiraling in high winds far above his head. That's right. (laughs) If you've been waiting for Overthinking It to talk Sharknado, Now's the time. Your wait is over. We are here to fulfill your yenning, your yen, your jonesing for hot flying shark commentary and analysis. Uh, Of course, this is on the occasion of the last Sharknado. It's about time, which aired last week on the Sci-Fi Channel. So this will be a Sharknado spoilery podcast. But you know what? If you haven't watched Sharknado by now... You should probably just talk to somebody who's seen it and get the general gist before you go and and venture into it. So we will be that for you. So joining us on the panel today, I have uh, Matt Belinke, Sharknado aficionado himself. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm I'm still dizzy from all the Sharknadoing, but I'm getting better. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. And of course, stalwart Mark Lee, who is not quite the aficionado, but is something of a weather system and predatory fish himself. Well, uh, is that <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Let's put it this way: my favorite James Bond movie is Moonraker. So, watching Sharknado three was a real pleasure. Spoiler alert: they go to space. space they go space, to space. Space, space. So, so by way of background, Sharknado six, it's about time, aired last week on the Sci Fi Channel, and as such, is not available on any of the yeah. streaming services that I personally subscribe Although, to. Pete, very, very brief uh, correction: the okay. the actual title of the movie, and and when I say it, it will make sense, is the last. Sharknado, it's about time. Okay, got which it. Is, because, which is doubly funny, both because the series has worn out its welcome rating-wise, and also because it does feature time travel prominently. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, oh. so, so, in, so Matt Belinke has watched all six Sharknado movies, and he is our Sharknado expert. Mark and I will have to make do with a mere two Sharknado movies that we have each seen. The first Sharknado, which is something of a canonical uh, text, as it were, and Sharknado 3, Oh, hell no, in which they go to space, which has been recommended to us by Matt as the best Sharknado movie. Matt, would you stand by that recommendation? I mean, I think we've joked on numerous occasions that the Fast and the Furious, for the final Fast and the Furious, they've got to straight up go to the moon, right? And have like like uh, moon buggies with nitrous. And that's what they do in Sharknado 3. They straight up go into space with David Hasselhoff. And I will, as as great, as much as I enjoyed the fourth, fifth, and six Sharknados, I kind of feel like there was no place to go but back down to Earth after that one. Right, right, right. The third one, that's where David Hasselhoff pulls the Bruce Willis in Armageddon and sacrifices himself to stop sharks from destroying the eastern seaport, right? Yeah, although to be fully accurate, because he ends up on the moon, it would be, it's spoilers alert for, for uh, Space Cowboys. It's a Tommy Lee Jones in Space Cowboys is what he does. Oh, okay, okay. He, okay. he strands himself on the moon so that humanity may survive. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so the the really high level view here is that it's a this is a movies about weather systems that create, you know, water spouts that that suck sharks out of the ocean and fling them at the land. And as far as I can tell, it remains an in-universe mystery. Perhaps it's explained in the later Sharknado films, but at least through the third Sharknado film, it remains a mystery why Tons and tons of sharks are being picked up by tornadoes and flung along with high winds and debris at major cities, theme parks, NASCAR races, any sort of thing that you want to see destroyed. But that the general gist of the movies is that you go from set piece to set piece to set piece where fairly crudely animated CGI sharks are flung through the air in great numbers at at various sorts of settings and people and many, many, many celebrity cameos. I think the latest one had like 80 celebrity cameos in it. And the sharks eat everything in, in terrible blood effects and goriness. Uh, is that a good summary, I guess, of like what the general idea of Sharknado is? These sort of indulgent indulgent shark destruction movies it it is and i i think it's safe to say and, and i this sentence is going to sound ridiculous but the first sharknado was much more serious in tone right right, right and it right. became and which is funny because the first sharknado was still called sharknado 
And it certainly on the scale of serious to frivolous is not on the serious side, but but it becomes extremely self-mocking extremely quickly. Um, and it, the characters become caricatures very quickly. But the first movie has a, has a, a, a sort of a fig leaf of a explanation for it, which is that it's uh, maybe global warming related sort of a freak hurricane that's going to hit the uh Los Angeles. It's never exactly happened before. This is driving all the sa- uh, the sharks sort of north from Mexico. There's also there's a little um, before the credits uh, sort of a prequel uh, sort of setup uh, to the movie where it takes place on a boat in the middle of the Pacific where an illegal uh, shark fin trade is going on. There's literally like two sketchy guys with guns who are making some sort of a deal for like a million dollars of shark fins that are going to be traded on the black market. Um, None of this matters because the boat and both of them are destroyed immediately, but it sort of, it sort of sets up like almost like a, a karmic reason for the Sharknado that like humans have mistreated sharks and preyed upon sharks. And now it's the shark's turn to, to reassert dominance. Right, right, right. And this is a, this is a set of movies. Well, before we go any deeper into it, I just want to ask you, Matt, did you walk us through your journey with these six movies and, and what brought you to the experience of watching each of the six Sharknado movies as they came out? So I, as probably do most uh, overthinkers and fans of overthinking it, uh, have a love for bad, cheesy movies. I was like in a, a big fan of the OG uh, Mystery Science Theater when it aired on Comedy Central, where they would dig up these sort of cheesy artifacts of like the 50s and 60s and make fun of them. And when I had a child, uh, which was 13 years ago, believe it or not, uh, it was sort of in the back of my mind that like, oh, it's going to be great when this kid is older that we can watch cheesy movies and giggle about them together. But I apparently inherited some sort of monkey's paw at some point because what I have is a child who will only watch cheesy movies and will refuse, will actively resist watching good movies. So just to 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 a relevant example here is I have a child who has watched Jaws 2, 3, and 4 but not Jaws 1. <laughs> and it's not like I, I can't force him to watch Jaws 1, but I've, I've expressed in glowing terms what a credible craftsmanship and, and how meaningful the movie Jaws is to me. But he still loves when Michael Caine just gets eaten right out of the dinghy in Jaws the Revenge. Right, where, where the fish takes revenge on people and tracks them over long land-based distances with no technological or natural means to do so, right? Where they were like, the shark travels from like place to place in order to like prey on people from the original movie. Uh, I remember yeah. that was that Michael Caine skipped his Oscar acceptance speech for that, right? For making that yes, movie. <laughs> exactly. Although I've, uh, oh God, now I have terrible Jaws the Revenge uh, flashbacks. But basically, so here's the deal. So those are movies that, Let's assume that like the people trying to make those movies really wanted to make the best Jaws movie that they could. Mm-hmm. Sharknado films are a little different because, as the title would imply, these are movies that are kind of made in a tongue-in-cheek spirit. They're made to be campy fun, and everyone in it is winking at, at the movie the whole time. And so that like you're not laughing at it, you're laughing with it. Um, but this is right in his wheelhouse. As a 12-year – I mean, if sophomoric is, is something that's supposed to – be at the sort of level of, I guess, a sophomore in high school. And and infantile is something that's like much more like, you know, elementary preschool. Is there like a word that means like a middle school sense of humor? Uh, it's not juvenile. Is that or. Um... Yeah, maybe juvenile. All right. So th- yeah. this is. This, Be- I, call, I would call are... it Beavis and Buttheadian. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, in the violence is super cartoony. Like, people's limbs are often severed, but they're always, like, horrible CG effects. Right. Um, and, you know, people are just, like, crushed by sharks and at hilarious moments and in hilarious ways. Um, and so it totally appeals to him. And so he got immediately into this. And uh, we, we only started at the beginning of this year. So I did not watch these in real time as they started rolling out every single summer starting in 2013. Um to the point where, by the way, so Sharknado 3, which came out in 2015, is has a scene uh, where the uh, the main character, uh, Finn, gets to meet the president of the United States in recognition of his heroic actions in Sharknado 1 and 2. And the president of the United States was actually supposed to be played by Donald Trump. 
who back in 2015 was a private citizen who was merely flirting with the idea of running for president. And it was going to be a really cute inside joke to have him. And he I guess he, he was just serious enough about running for president that he actively like thought that it would it would take away the seriousness of that by appearing in the movie. And they replaced him in a brilliant piece of casting with Mark Cuban, which is brilliant, both because Mark Cuban is a Donald Trump sort of foil, but also because he is, in fact, the the main shark on Shark Tank. Right, right, so right. It's, it's and, meta and, casting and also may ways. still run for president in the future. Let's not <laughs> close for president. That and also is like very in, in terms of Sharknado cameos, Sharknado has a number of celebrities that have no business acting in any sense. And the the horrible nature of their acting is like part of the charm of the whole thing. But Mark Cuban is actually pretty game for this and and enjoys both the sort of like um cheeseball dialogue and like when he gets to pick up a machine gun and like in his tuxedo, you know, from his state dinner and blow away shark sort of like in the Oval Office. Right. Um, anyway, so yeah. we, we watched them all. And so that we could finally enjoy the last Sharknado. It's about time uh, live just last week. And so the, the circle is now complete. And it is, in fact, a circle because I don't think it's a spoiler by being uh, by saying that because it's a time travel movie, it ends uh, in the same place as it begins uh, and in fact, they bring back every every character who has been killed in the many Sharknados sort of come back for like almost like a high school reunion type scene where they're all st- back alive, sitting around oblivious, including this is j- just to give you a sense about like how convoluted and large these casts become. Sharknado six features Gary Busey and he doesn't even say anything. He's just there in the background. So like, that's not a movie that like you have access to Gary Busey and like you've got so much to do that you can't even like give him a line. I feel like the the one celebrity who who ate it the hardest that that I hope comes back and gets some sort of vindication has got to be Frankie Munez, he of Malcolm in the Middle, oh, who gets a oh. wonderful, uh, just a wonderful, glorious dismemberment in Sharknado Three, where the sharks bite off first a leg, then an arm, then his other leg. And then his other arm so that he has to hit the self-destruct button to destroy the sharks with his chin, uh, killing himself, but saving the protagonists as they fly away to try to live to fight another day. Does Frankie Munez come back in Sharknado 6? I don't believe he comes back. No! (laughs) Um, He's too good for it? Is that what you're saying? Although I do, I do feel, uh, you know, who, who does, and he's dead, but they get an impersonator, uh, John Hurd, who plays a, he's, he was an Emmy award winning sort of character actor. He won an Emmy for a, um, uh, outstanding supporting role in the Sopranos in 1999. And he plays a small, but prominently credited role because of his sort of like actual good actor status in the first Sharknado. And they get somebody who vaguely looks like him to appear in the final scene of the last Sharknado, even though in real life, John Hurd is is no longer with us. That's interesting. John Hurd is a really important figure in the history of Sharknado, right? Because I think getting him on board with it was something that led them to believe that the project was really actually going to happen. Uh, they, they, he was sort of the beam of hope. I, I remember because we've read up a lot of us. We've been swapping Sharknado articles leading up to this. And the ways that the different actors get on Sharknado is interesting in that, you know, Ian's Ian, Ian Ziering, the guy from 90210, who's the star of Sharknado. Right. He was m- more than 100 people deep in the n- people that they asked to be the lead in this movie, including a request to Limp Biscuit frontman Fred Durst with the tag on that he could direct the movie himself and also star in it if he would be in it. And he said no. And and Ian Ziering also said said no or Ian Ziering also said no twice until his wife who had just given birth reminded him that if he did this movie he would have done enough work to qualify for SAG union health insurance for their newborn child. And so this is like a movie that if we had a better healthcare system never would have existed but that for some reason is it uh John Hurd is the is the one who uh who is like, oh, he signed on to it to be like a legit actor. Oh, man, this thing might actually happen. We don't have to like so desperately looking for people. And you had told me, Matt, that Tara Reid was like a big get for them, too, right, from American Pie. I think they, they tried numerous people before Tara Reid. And, and yeah. this is a part of the sort of mythology of Sharknado is Tara Reid's acting gets more. And, and this is kind of this is not even like it. it it's not even funny to make fun of Tara Reid's acting in it because I you, you got to believe in it. 
has some sort of health problem. Like, <laughs> like a, she a health problem. Like the actress has a health problem. Is what you're saying. I mean, you you can Google that th- there was there was an interview that she did promoting Sharknado Six where she was so sort of sporadic uh, that people worried that like she was. Just like not not all there. I mean, there are all these oh. rumors that that she in the days after American Pie uh, enjoyed herself a little too much. And so, like, like I, I guess what I'm saying is like Tara Reid is not merely a bad actress. She seems like she's not fully aware that she's in a movie all the time. Interesting. Interesting. Which is like a f- certain sort of performance style. I would I don't know. I would characterize the performance style of Sharknado as having the aspect that's similar to watching a child put on a puppet show. In that, you know, the child has the two puppets and the child knows what the puppets are going to do. Right. And it's like, oh, uh, we have to go make the cookies. okay, but make sure that you put this on the cookies. Oh, like this is I don't want to put this is bad. I'll put this on the cookies. But it's even less sophisticated than that. It's like. It's like um, the the action needs to be carried forward. Like these two things need to fight. Oh, they need to fight. Yeah, this one fights this one. This one fights this one. This one has a karate chop. This one has a pizza slicer or whatever. You know, like and and there's a. It seems like the movies like burst forth with whatever shark attack is going to happen next or whatever action the heroes are going to take against the shark attack next. And the words that they say feel like a sort of. Not perfunctory, but but they lag the action a little bit like it's it's that the um, the the decision to do the thing has already happened. And the line is delivered in a way that feels both kind of like I'm trying to say a thing like somebody would say it right. Like as in like this is what somebody else would say. Like uh, if I were Mark, like if I were saying uh, I talked to rather the other day and I said this and he said this. Right. And it's that. And he said this where you're kind of putting your characterization like into some other creature and that and that some other thing. Right. You're like you're like imbuing this sort of imaginary person with the ability to talk like a person who's not there. I mean, rather is obviously real, but he's not here. And so if I were to talk as if rather if I were rather in his personage when he's not here, be like, you know, we're your smart, funny friends from the Internet. Right. I do that thing where it's like not my real voice and it's inflected a little bit. And I feel like all the time in Sharknado, people are talking like that constantly and it makes the characters seem like puppets. And I think that that is part of what makes it funny because there's this comedic theory about the like, human biomechanics and uh, and this idea that like one of the big jokes in physical comedy is that the human body is a machine and we like to think of it as more than a machine, more than just a physical object. And so when you see the human body being treated and acting like a non-special physical object, it's funny because there's like a secret truth in there that we all know about ourselves. And so like watching somebody like walk around and like say lines inauthentically and speak as if they're not quite there or address situations that would require a great deal of planning and execution with like one line of dialogue that happens after it's already started, right? Like like in Sharknado 3, where they need to, they, de- they decide very fast that they need to go into space. I don't even really understand how they come to the conclusion that they need to come into space. But within, with, they're in South Carolina, or no, they're in Daytona, Florida, when they make this decision to go to outer space, and they almost immediately abscond with NASCAR cars to be like, let's go to Cape Canaveral. Yeah, right? And it's this idea that we don't have to set up the fact that Somebody has to be waiting for us in Cape Canaveral or like, where would we even go if we wanted to have a space? Do we have to go to Houston? Do we have to go somewhere and talk to somebody in the government? No, it's like the space station, the space shuttles at Cape Canaveral. We're going to drive to Cape Canaveral. We're going to say the line. Let's go to Cape Canaveral as if some sort of puppet is saying it. And then that person who's saying it is going to get eaten by a shark. Right. Maybe. And then because that person wasn't acting like a real person, their loss isn't sad. Right. It's it's that like this sort of debasement of their body and their death isn't sad, partly informed by the fact that the way that they were acting doesn't feel real. Um, I don't know, Mark, you you jumped in there for a second. Does this resonate with your watching these movies at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you said, you know, like a puppet show. I mean, uh, yeah. perhaps a different, uh, more accurate way to say it would be uh, children playing with action figures. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and, and, and you're talking about this kind of completely illogical, nonsensical uh, transition from one uh, set of events to another, which is o- only slightly more illogical than what we see in a typical Hollywood blockbuster, but just enough so that our brain registers it and puts this into a different category than like an Armageddon 
or Fast and the Furious or yeah. any other or Transformers movie. Um, that that might be okay. Here's a question for the group then, right? It's like when we talk, what are we talking about when we talk about Sharknado? We're talking about mm-hmm. a certain kind of badness. Right, and we're talking about a movie that is specifically constructed for this badness, and a very distinct category from something like I mentioned Transformers before. Probably, like, you know, a really good canonical example of a movie that is like separated by this by a lot in terms of sophistication and budget, but only slightly in terms of acting ability and logic of plot. So, like, what then are those salient cleavages? What really sets this apart from those other mm-hmm. things? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think an equally good question is that th- this is by far not the only low-budget movie that goes for this cheeseball aesthetic. In fact, this movie is produced by The Asylum, which is a company that turns out a tremendous, a shocking amount of these low-budget, purposely cheesy movies. Um, that, that just for for example, this is I was I was looking at a list of these, and uh, before we uh, before we did it, and then a, a few years ago they did uh, one called Lava Lanchula. <laughs> starring Steve Gutenberg, uh, which is about which is about a, a, a tarantula that that uh, comes out of a volcano. But that's the reason I mention this is they then did a sequel, and the sequel is one of the best names of a movie I've ever heard, which is Two Lava Two Lanchula, with yeah, numbers yeah, but, numbers for two and an exclamation point. But those movies didn't capture the zeitgeist in the same way. Right, that's my did. point. Is that like so they they've tried this way before Sharknado and they've tried it many times since Sharknado and somehow Sharknado caught people's fancy in a way that Two Lava Two Lanchula did not despite arguably having a, a bigger star is it that there's a lot of Steve Gutenberg fans out there and I, I believe Jonesy from Police Academy is also in it, but he is also in the Sharknado movies as well. This so. is, <laughs> I, honestly, Two Lava, Two Lanchula is as close to a Police Academy sequel as we're going to get, because I, yeah. I think Michael Winslow is also mixing friends. <laughs> I mean, that, that's who I was talking about, right? Isn't that the right. guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who makes – and he even does like one funny sound effect. Um, did you, you watch – I, I actually not know. I, I, I've seen Police Academy and I know Michael Winslow, but I did not remember the name of his character until now. <laughs> fair so enough, now fair enough. I know something. Right, right, right. So so this is interesting. There's certain kinds of badness. So one thing that I keep asking myself while watching these movies is – how much how much of simulacrum some how much of a simulacrum are we dealing with here? How much is Sharknado and the world of Sharknado and particularly the worlds of Sharknado two through six? Because we've both acknowledged we all acknowledge that Sharknado when Sharknado one came out, it was a rough contemporary with Sharktopus, who we've talked about before on the podcast years ago. And Sharktopus was the Roger Corman cheesy corny one. And Sharknado was the one that was absurd, but was like gritty and angry and really violent in, in a different sort of vibe, right? Like uh, like when he, when Ian Ziering busts out the chainsaw in Sharknado, it is somewhat without irony that he does so, right? In his face and in his demeanor, right? But by the time he busts out the double-headed chainsaw in the James Bond parody intro to Sharknado 3, we've kind of gone past the point where even Sharktopus was. But um, but yeah, but 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 from all these other Sharknado movies, it's like, do they refer to a an imagined world in which the destruction of cities happens like the sort of uh, you can almost it's not a cinematic universe because we haven't layered on the idea that it has to be coherent. But that's just, just this space where cities get destroyed that we watch shows up like um. In the middle, I know I know the Sharknado 6 is the one that just came out, but talking more about Sharknado 3, they go to Universal Studios. And and I and I and I think in Sharknado 6 they go to like the old west and they right and they go to like medieval times, right? And and these are all like Blazing Saddles fake town places. These are all like places that are created to be imitations and are known primarily for the roles that they play in the entertainment of people by being imperfect imitations of life that are that are like specifically entertaining right like universal studios is is put together to be you know and, and disney world like it right is put together to be a not quite accurate copy of the world a copy of the world that is more fun more exciting where things that would be dangerous in the real world are safe but still thrilling right and where your needs are catered to and you can go with kids and walk down a fake main street and all that stuff and the Sharks destroying Universal Studios is sort of like giving the lie to the idea that any of this is operating in a level of interaction with reality, per se. 
And it's more like, are we watching the sharks destroy this fictional world? This like imagined world. The like when they go to Universal Studios, there's a twister ride and the sharks destroy the twister ride. And I felt like that was really poetic. Right? <laughs> when uh, in a sense that like twister takes an idea that it pur- 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 proposes to you is the real world with like a real divorce. Right. And it throws tornadoes at it. And uh, and that this divorce has to like deal with the tornadoes. This couple needs to come back together or fall apart in combat with these tornadoes. And they're computer generated and, and they're spectacle. Uh, but you and the cow that flies, right, is a famous moment from Twister where it's like, that eh, doesn't really look like a real cow. Uh, but the other moments of it, like when they strap themselves to the pipe, are trying to give you the sense of verisimilitude. And I wonder, I wonder how many layers there are between a plausible idea of a real world and a Sharknado destroying it, which then raises the question of what are the sharks eating? I mean, other than seagulls, of course, was they fly, they survive high in the uh high in the atmosphere over the ocean uh like like does that have something to do with badness and levels of badness is interaction with the interaction with the interaction with the interaction with the world rather than the interaction with the world itself i guess let, let, me, let me put it, let me answer this question with another question which is that yeah. um when you see the white house in the the movie the post and then you see it again in independence day getting blown up and then you see it again in sharknado 3 getting destroyed by sharks and other stuff um which of these white houses are real and what i just laid out there is a continuum of real white houses (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because the white house in all the president's men is realer than the white house in the post because the post is a reference to all the president's men Hmm. but then all the president's men is a reference to the watergate scandal as a historical event which in turn is a is as a sort of narrativized understanding of reality in the real white house what i'm saying is that the only real movie is white house down which is uh which it's a documentary just, with the events filmed in real time, of course. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Including the donuts in the Rose Garden while firing a 50 caliber machine gun. Uh, so, yeah, so your, your, the answer is no, we're not supposed to, like, you know, experience this with verisimilitude, right? Is that the, the, the short uh, answer to the long question? Although I, I will say that as the series goes on, part of the appeal of it, or at least part of the appeal for the filmmakers, they do seem to have done some, some token location shooting in various cities. So, so here's, here's the, the, the general sort of the Maslow hierarchy of needs for Sharknados. So the first one, just LA, the second one, just New York, right? So like the, the finale is at the top of the empire still, but state building. The third one starts Washington DC sort of moves its way South through the, uh, you know, uh, through the South and through Daytona and then finally Cape Canaveral and then ends in sort of space. Uh, the, Third, oh, sorry, that's the third one. So the fourth one goes all across the United States, starts in Las Vegas and covers like Yellowstone in the Grand Canyon and Chicago and uh, St. Louis. They have like, you know, basically like like all sorts of uh, national landmarks are hit by the Sharknados, right? So like when Rushmore gets hit and the finale is at um, – uh, Niagara Falls. And so then the fifth one goes global, finally. And is in fact, the subtitle is Global Swarming. And so they make it to Rio, and they're going to be in the giant, the giant statue is going to get blown over by the Sharknado, and Big Ben is going to get blown over by a Sharknado, and the Eiffel Tower is going to fly off with the Sharknado. Um, Stonehenge turns out to be... The, and, and not only that, but it, it expands not only geographically, but also in terms of the mythology, because it turns out that, like, you know, there, there are these ancient sort of uh, world heritage sites like Stonehenge and the pyramids where the, the, these mystical inscriptions are actually like the ancients had to deal with Sharknados that almost destroyed <laughs> humankind almost, you know, before civilization oh emerged and developed these artifacts. And there, there's a bit of a there, often sort of these, these uh, film parodies are sort of baked into the Sharknado pie. And Sharknado 5 has a lot of uh, Indiana Jones sort of Tomb Raider stuff in its DNA, and there's, like, all these artifacts that are being collected, uh, you know, from various temples that, like, potentially have the power to to uh, control the Sharknado, that they can either create it or, or, or uh, direct it at will. And there's, a, there's this, even a secret society that's been, like, passing this down over the years. So it expands the sort of mythology. And then 6 finally just goes straight up through time, all the way from the dinosaurs to the distant future, when uh, the only creatures left alive on Earth will be robot clones of Tara Reid and robot sharks. <laughs> and robot sharks? Yeah, and it's it's. I, but the robot sharks are more like pets and helpers of Terry. Terry is as, as it basically emerges as like a, a late. The, 
I mean, here's the thing. So there are various kinds of Tara Reid by the end of the movie because she starts out as a person, as a human woman. Uh, but at the end of Sharknado 3, she is uh, crushed by a satellite. But then uh, in the five years that uh, between the events of Sharknado 3 and Sharknado 4, she has then rebuilt uh, into a android by Gary Busey, who is her father. And I don't really see the resemblance Gary Busey and Tara Reid, but – I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. So she becomes an Android. And, um, what happens is that like, and, and I'm sure I saw this in Star Trek, the next generation, at least like twice is that during the events of Sharknado six, her head is like knocked off her robot body sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And there's some sort of a story that like once the Sharknado's, extinguish all life on earth like many years later her head finally somehow emerges from the ocean and like rebuilds cybernetic life and is like and but but bears a grudge against humanity for like abandoning her in the depths of the sea and so there's a final showdown between sort of uh our generation's robot terror reed and distant future robot terror reed that has become uh cynical and uh harbored like a deep sort of i have no mouth and yet i'm a scream uh what is it uh ellison uh hatred of humanity right it's sort of a little bit like the good robot uses and bad robot uses from bill and ted's bogus journey as they like go through hell and come back to battle each other uh for the for the future that's, oh, that's right. Really it's, it's funny that 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 obviously Finn uh, Ian there is the main character. But if you watch all the way to the end of Sharknado six in the final sort of like a uh, swirling time vortex of the Sharknado, where the very fabric of reality is like uh, very much at stake. The final showdown is between two cybernetic terror reads. Yeah. And uh, Finn is a mere sort of like accessory to one one of these uh, terror reads. It is interesting. So. In my my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that in the heart of the Sharknado movies is this really I'm not going to call it weird, but surprisingly complicated triangle be, right between the uh, between Finn Shepard, who is the uh, the the sort of uh, Aeneas, right, the, the sort of uh, the leading for current young father figure, although he has an older father and he has like kids, right, of this clan of shepherds that always fights the sharks, and he's got his wife who's played by Tara Reid and is basically just Tara Reid. I mean, I know the character has another name, but like her personality takes over it so much. She's almost like Liz Taylor at this point, right? Like she doesn't disappear at all into the character. The character disappears into her. And, uh, and then, and then on one hand, she has the, he has the Tara Reid who is his wife, who he really loves and who he keeps trying to save from sharks. And then there's Nova who is like this survivalist special forces kind of like stripper looking tomb Raider looking lady. Right. Um, uh, it's like a running gag, I guess, that the wife keeps calling her a stripper. And she seems to be in love with Finn Shepard also. And at least for as far as I've watched into Sharknado, Finn Shepard remains like mostly oblivious and somewhat disinterested in the affections of Nova. But they have this relationship. And it's interesting to think that like the idea of like, Nova is always chasing Finn and Finn is not even showing interest, but the presence of Nova is itself a threat. You would think normally in in a story that this would be like the male fantasy, right? Is that like, well, I get to be faithful to my wife, but also I have this like, you know, crazy uh, terrorist uh, fighter jet fighter lady with the crop top chasing me around. Um, It would remind me of Getaway with uh, Ethan Hawke and Selena Gomez, where it's like, well, I had to drive in this Mustang with the 17 year old pop star girl to save my wife. Right. That's what John Voight told me to do. But then at the same time, is it more that this is the in Sharknado? Is it more that this is the dark fantasy that exists in Tara Reid's mind? The idea that like this is the nature of her marriage, right, is that is that she has the husband and she loves him and he loves her. But there is this woman that exists in their life together who is some somewhat predatory and always present and and that she has this sort of like manifestation of the sharks always trying to eat her and always trying to eat the whole world because she has this like fear of abandonment, right, that her husband's going to leave her for Nova. 
and I mean, does the later movies go into the Nova relationship at all or like yeah. cash that out? So, so Nova, I would say, is by far the most interesting character in this series. And I, yeah. I think that that both both sort of a fan favorite because she's actually a pretty decent actress, very attractive lady. She's only 28 now, so she was 22, 23 when the series began. But like the she actually is the only one with like a real arc and a real backstory, which is uh, it's sort of uh, she she has like a a nebulous fear and hatred of sharks in the first movie that's only yeah. revealed sort of like, you know, two thirds of the way through, she gives a monologue, which is clearly supposed to be maybe a straight up parody. If not, if not a head nod to the, uh, to the famous Quinn monologue and jaws, where she talks about how her grandparents who raised her, took her on a charter boat that went down and uh, sharks just ate her grandparents right in front of her. And she was the only one that survived. And ever since then, she's like hated and feared sharks. But then it, yeah. so in Sharknado 1, you know, it's funny that you describe her as like some some ultimate sort of special forces freedom fighter, which is what she becomes. But she starts out as a waitress. Right. So that 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 uh, Finn is a former surfing champion who now owns a bar and runs a bar. And she is just like works at the bar and clearly has a crush on her boss. Right. Right. Who is, who's maybe kind of enjoys the attention, but like actually waves her off because it would be inappropriate to do anything about this. Um, and it, it, it should be said that at the beginning of the movie, by the way, Sharknado one, he's estranged from uh, Tara Reid. Uh, she's with somebody new who gets promptly eaten by a shark, thus opening up the opportunity to, for them to get back together. Um, ah. It's basically, if you ever seen 2012, it's the sort of way that um, the destruction of the world really does wonders for John Cusack's relationship with his estranged ex. <laughs> or um, like Jeff Goldblum in Independence Day. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like th this provides him with the opening that he needs. Um, so Nova goes from being like literally just a cocktail waitress to uh, becoming like, you know, the, a, a shark fighting ninja who has like a whole army, right? Like, you know, like specialized equipment, uh, a team supporting her she has like a, a literally a worldwide network of operatives uh, by sharknado 5 and it's funny because finn although he is the main character and he is often sort of looked to as like the ultimate shark fighting authority like for instance in also in sharknado 5 the pope who's played by fabio uh, goes to finn and bestows upon him a, a blessed uh, divine chainsaw that has uh the the power of god um you know so so but finn is a reluctant warrior right finn does not want to fight sharks he doesn't go seeking these sharknados he just wants to like be left alone and to like go back to a normal quiet life but the sharknados seek him out whereas nova is the exact opposite nova has no interest in going back to the bar and, and in fact uh like gives finn uh like like is critical of finn for sort of shirking his responsibility to the human race and not and, and sort of like wanting to leave the fight as opposed to in, you know, figure out like you know, stay one step ahead of the Sharknados, and in right. fact, so in Sharknado Six, the sort of ultimate uh, conflict at the end becomes that like once they've harnessed the power of time travel, in addition to uh, undoing all the Sharknados and preventing the world from being destroyed as it is at the end of Sharknado Five, Nova wants to use the time travel to save her grandparents to go back to like her origin story, and Finn is trying to prevent her because if this happens, she doesn't become Nova. So it's it's almost like it's it's a uh, I don't know is it, is it a fully Greek tragedy of sort of like Nova has to accept that her personal pain is the sort of cost of her gift right that like she doesn't become Nova unless she sacrifices her grandparents and watches them die again right 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 that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And so it's like, does, yeah. yeah, like, you know, like Finn doesn't have a April doesn't have a story like that. She's the only one who actually has like a real something driving her and stakes and, uh, you know, goes through like uh, changes and has actual acting to do, <laughs> which is good because she's a, an actual actress. Yeah, she kind of is an actual actress. <laughs> That's really interesting. And so, so then in the in the end of things, then she doesn't end up with Finn. Does she ever? She never gets together with Finn over the course of the movies. I mean, the, the closest it becomes is that like she and Finn definitely have like a few flirty moments in Sharknado One, and I mean, and and Tara Reid is sort of like awkwardly looking on, not being with Finn, and then and then. There's some. It actually is implied that she's going to get together with Finn's son, 
uh-huh. who is a character in Sharknado One who is like kind of age appropriate for her in a way that Finn is not. Right. Um, and so that like they're they're sort of like you know as as in a any good sort of Shakespearean production, this sort of like mismatched couples resolve themselves into perfectly matched couples, and and everything ends happily. But then she, as far as I know, she never ends up with with anybody because she basically uh, sublimates her romantic uh, issues and to just this all consuming quest to destroy sharks uh, wherever they <laughs> arise. Man, she's that's, this is a great character. <laughs> this is somebody you should be tracking. We should extract Nova from this series and put her in a better movie. <laughs> this, is, this is a lot more than I expected from these movies. And, and for those who have never seen a Sharknado, by the way, like just, I don't know, like, Scrub, load it up on Netflix and scrub through a little bit of it because it is nowhere near as well made as like we're <laughs> describing it here. Like, just to be really clear, these are shoddily made movies, at yeah. least insofar as like the standard that we typically come to expect for, um, you know, the the not even prestige, but like mainline CBS procedurals, um, and most blockbuster movies. Like, there's like bad cuts, um, and dialogue that. Um, is not clever and is not uh, not even delivered well, either. Right? I, I, I want to make yeah. that clear as well. I mean, I, I love <laughs> I, I love that we've we've got this whole Greek tragedy angle going on here. And the last one, um, you know, there 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 are certainly interesting ideas to be mined from it. I mean, if if uh, we're nothing if not overthinking it, right? Um, but I guess another, you know, we were earlier I was trying to draw a contrast between this movie and say a Transformers movie, but now I want to draw a contrast between this and say like. Um, a Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright movie, like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. Because right, these right. are all ostensibly still, you know, parodies, right? Making fun of the uh, disaster, uh, you know, animal movie, and uh, monster movie in the case of Sharknado, and in the case of, like, Hot Fuzz, making fun of parodying uh, the cop movie. And yet one of them is done uh, with a lot more uh, style, with a lot more cleverness. Um, I mean, it, it, I guess all that is, it's, it's not a controversial thing to say that, like, Hot Fuzz is a more satisfying movie to watch than any of the Sharknado movies. Um, well, I guess first I'll ask that question to you guys. Is that, do you feel that that is the case? And if so, why? And if not, then, well, let, let's have it out. I feel like the Sharknado movies are anthologies. <laughs> they're they're sort of like uh, you know 25 short stories about sharks eating people you know like that's it's, a good it's, way uh, to put it yeah yeah no. yeah and it's and each and, and this is why it's important that finn not really change from story to story that that finn is the sort of same he, it's it's a little bit he's a little bit like jack bauer from 24 but but even but like rather than the plots taking you know like a couple of episodes or even a couple of weeks the plots take like four minutes Right. Where it's like, oh, OK, we have to break into this place and go do this thing. And and then once we do that, oh, it's over. Now we have to go do this other thing. Right. And it just races from place to place. But every place he goes to, he's that same character that Matt's describing, the sort of reluctant shark slayer that everybody thinks is the savior of the world, but doesn't want to be. And uh, and just I think that the fact that it can keep uh, just 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 abandoning characters like so in the beginning of, of Sharknado 3 and I believe he's in Sharknado 2 also the lead singer of the 90s pop punk band Sugar Ray is a major character right uh, and he's like Finn's friend who is now at the White House and uh, and and he's like smoozing with people and he's talking yeah, Mark McGrath yeah Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray is like does a reasonable good reasonable job of acting in this movie and within the first, well, within the first 10 minutes, a Sharknado attacks Washington, D.C. And it's funny because I say that and it's not like this isn't like you're watching a Batman movie. And in the first scene that you see is, you know, build up, build up, build up. Bane attacks a plane. No, like the first scene in Sharknado 3 is like a bunch of exposition. And, and like and it's like, oh, you have to go into this thing and you have to go talk to the president and all this stuff has to happen. And they work their way through the exposition scenes and the sharks destroy and they, the sharks destroy Washington, D.C. like like seven minutes in it starts. So it's like they actually get through. They start with the exposition, but they get through it so fast. And Mark McGrath is like a pretty major character through the first like five minutes of this movie. And the last we see of him is him pulling a portrait of Abraham Lincoln off of the wall while with Ann Coulter, who pulls a picture of George Washington off the wall, and they both surf down a flight of stairs covered in water on top of the portraits of the presidents, presumably to be eaten by sharks and never seen again. And it's and he's like not in the rest of the movie, right? He's just not in it. I don't think he even shows up again in the series, as far as I know. 
and and so how much can you really build to if you're constantly jettisoning your characters? Like, what can you really arrive at in terms of a sum total of things? I mean, you can do that if the characters have sort of like a Joycean lack of identity, like something like the Thin Red Line or or Dunkirk, where like, you know, even Dunkirk, you know, you track certain characters through the whole thing. But like in a movie like that, everybody's kind of playing different aspects of the same two or three people. And so you a bunch of them can die and then other ones pick up and keep going and the story can still mount because the characters kind of share this this kind of investment that you've made in them. Uh, but in Sharknado, the characters are wildly different. You know, like in Dunkirk, it's like this guy is a British kid who's fighting and this kid is another British kid who's fighting and this one's a French kid who's fighting. And in Sharknado, is like this kid is a teenage kid who's fighting and that is Irish Eurovision sensation Jedward, which is in this movie for some reason. And there's pro wrestler Chris Jericho. And they're all just wildly different from each other. So the investment you make in any one character doesn't really carry over to the other characters. And as such, the Sharknado uh, is more of a Sharknado than a shark right? It's like a, a brief, a brief, powerful uh, system that just sort of exerts and destroys and dissipates over and over again, as opposed to like the sort of giant cyclones that they talk about building that like really comes to some sort of peak at some point. I mean, I don't know, Matt, what do you think about the sort of uh, the sum of the Sharknado dismembered parts as they get pulled back together into these movies? Or is there something else that Edgar Wright does that uh, Sharknados don't that gives them this sort of sense of achievement or of something being accomplished or some sort of greater satisfaction that Mark is describing? Or nothing at all, or is it not satisfying at all? <laughs> I don't know. Is Sharknado just as good? Is the other is the other side of the coin there? And we're all just overthinking it, as we tend to do because of the name of the podcast. Mm. So I don't think you could talk about any of the Sharknados after the first one without addressing the cameos, which yes. are not which are not Easter eggs so much as like a lot of the enjoyment of the movie is baked into knowing who these people are and enjoying the way that they're being used in a sort of tongue in cheeky sort of way. Um, right. And so it, it almost like the plot becomes a clothesline on which to hang a series of sort of funny cameos. So, I mean, a good example is like in The Last Sharknado, which is called The Last Sharknado, they go back to medieval times and they encounter a witch. And that witch is played by a, a drag queen uh, called Alaska. And I cannot say her last name because it's a chili pepper. But she is famous that she uh, was the runaway uh, winner of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. So she is she is like, you know, maybe the most famous alumnus of RuPaul's Drag Race. And she appears as like a sort of a glammed out uh, witch, you know, with magical powers in medieval times. And she is then opposed by a sort of a, um, a, a wizard that is played by Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> so there is there is in fact like one scene where there is a face off between like you know a world famous drag queen and Neil deGrasse Tyson who both have magical powers and um eventually decide to join forces and the the sort of tr- uh, the dramatic conclusion of this is Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, rides into battle on the back of a pterodactyl that they brought from uh, prehistoric times and I think I think yells out triumphantly like who needs science when you've got a pterodactyl. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so it's like, but if you don't know who Alaska is and you don't know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is, it's, you lose a lot of the point of the scene, the funniness. Same thing in the same movie that like the 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 um, the sheriff in the Old West is played by Dee Snyder from uh, Twisted Sister. And it does like it like makes numerous references to like we're not going to take it in his lines. Right. Uh, and so like, you know, it's it's those it's the 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 fun weird cameos like fabio as the pope and all that that become like half the fun of the movie and sort of like knowing who they are so it's almost like a second screen experience where like if you don't know who these people are you need to like be on twitter or you need some sort of a a cheat sheet that sort of like lets you be in the know about like all these uh all these people who are stepping in Mm -hmm. in these funny self-mocking roles yeah uh like you you run down a lot of good cameos there but i want to point out a bad cameo. I don't want to sound like I'm like the, the wet towel uh, or uh, raining on the shark parade uh, here, but uh, you know, I, I guess I'm not as taken of these as you are, Matt. Um, so I like I'll, I'll point out uh, again in Sharknado three, Anthony Weiner, for no apparent reason, <laughs> he's just like another you know random uh, control guy in uh, NASA Mission Control. 
right? And, uh, you know, unlike, say, like, you know, the the science line of Neil deGrasse Tyson, there's nothing that clues into his broader uh, role in pop culture uh, as, I guess, as a politician who took uh, naughty pictures of himself. Um, It's just not referenced at all. He's just, like, delivers a few lines and is there for you to titter at. Be like, ha-ha-ha, that's Anthony Weiner. And look look how low... He's fallen that he has to be in Sharknado instead of like running for mayor or president uh, or something like that. And, like and so, I, I guess all, all that is to say, like you know, a lot of these cameos work well, but a, a lot of this is also just done in a completely slapdash fashion, just kind of like throwing a bunch of crap on the wall and try to get just just to get a titter, literally at that level of haha, it's Anthony Weiner, and nothing more other than that is going on, which is interesting in and of itself, I suppose. But uh, the other cameos, like you said, are much more interesting. It is fun to think of the cameos as something that the patterns and the enjoyment of them are created by the mind of the viewer looking to create order from chaos. <laughs> and that's some of the although you could also say the editor can do that, too. Right. The editor of the film has that power because certainly that's how they get the cameos. I think I read that they literally just make a list of every famous person they can think of and ask them all like thousands of people like like they, like there are literally four digits of people who have been asked to be in sharknado movies in these celebrity cameos and uh and and who they happen to get is who ends up in the movie and then there's two levels of well there's three levels of interpretation that that would go through one where do they go into the movie and how two once all the footage is shot how does it get edited and put together so that this person gets put in this context or that person put in that context and three when we watch the movie that has all these chaotic cameos in it what sense do we make of it so like you see anthony weiner up there and you make the associations in your mind with the sex scandals right and matt sees it and he sees sees you know the the alaska's connection to rupaul's drag race right and like is looking for connections to neil degrasse tyson certainly we can all think that there must be some sort of commentary that is happening between drag queens who are about kind of fantasy and kind of fantasy performative identity and a very postmodern understanding of what's real, right? Like realness as in the standard of realness in drag queen competition is very different from the standard of realness in experimental science, right? And sort of Wittgensteinian positivism that, uh, that Neil deGrasse Tyson would appeal to. And then both being magicians, it gives a sort of discursive, a sort of discursive level of complexity to their medieval wizard combat. I, I don't know if this was planned, right? Like what level of pattern making what level of reading the spaghetti sauce on the wall is that coming from the level at which they are being put in the movie, the level in which they are being edited in the movie, or just the level in which we are seeing them and we are straining just automatically because we can't help it to find some sort of pattern. And then we find pleasure in the pattern uh, and, and it derives from that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is. So. It is very like right. The reason why people play certain roles, like you're you're trying to reverse uh, engineer it. So there's a there's a scene in Sharknado Five where they're in Australia. Australia is being attacked by a shark, and there's a scientist that is played by Olivia Newton John, who is and now Olivia Newton John is Australian, right? Uh, sure. Yes. yes, she is. Right. So this is, it kind of makes sense that like she is the Australian scientist and she reveals that the Sydney Opera House is in fact a shark fighting weapon and the, the sails sort of open up and reveal laser beams and one of the sails gets stuck and she's like, we can't open it. Send in the hawk. And then Tony Hawk comes out and skates on top of the Sydney Opera House and opens up the sail. So that connection kind of makes sense, too, because it's like, okay, it looks like a skateboarding ramp. You need somebody to navigate the top of the Sydney Opera House in order to open it up. But it's so it's sort of like there is almost like a free association going. And and also, if she's a scientist and she's trying to solve the problem with science and can't, she has to get physical, physical. Come on and get physical. Right. And she does. She, by the way, she does say that. Right. Like they're not they're not subtle about these cameos. And in fact, I, I read George R. R. Martin makes a cameo in Sharknado three and they originally recorded him literally saying winter is coming before he dies. And I think they cut it because it didn't make any sense in context. But like, I mean, that's that's how obvious these cameos are. They're like you will be saying the most obvious thing that you are known for in the movie right before you are crushed by a shark. Yeah. Lou right. Frigno is in, also in Sharknado three. And of course, he says uh, you won't like me when I'm angry. And it barely, barely makes any sense. And of course, he's eaten by a shark immediately after he says that. And so, Matt, what's your favorite overall cameo in all the Sharknado movies? Oh, geez. Top three, top five, anything that makes the top five. 
Leading contenders. Sharknado cameo. Um, Other than Frankie Munez being kinda, dismembered limb by limb while he's trying to push the button. I mean, yeah, no, I was I was going to I could easily go there. I, I would say um, Gilbert Gottfried, who's someone <laughs> that like I don't recognize, who plays a sort of a, a a newsman who is like sent to the front to broadcast live from the Sharknado. And um and continually rebrands the Sharknado with like as it mutates so that like if it like soaks up like a bunch of um like a one uh, I'm trying I'm trying to come up with like one of the things he's he's saying that um oh yeah like like it 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 goes over like it's in Africa and he's like following it along and it like sucks up uh a bunch of gazelle and the sharks are eating the gazelle and then the lions go into the sharknado and the lions and the sharks start fighting and, and i can't do a gilbert Gottfried impression but he sort of turns to the camera and he's like it's a safari nato <laughs> he does these like continually like he almost almost like it's like a the, uh, uh, like a prairie home companion style, like groan inducing pun routine where he's going to like set up like the shark NATO has like absorbed a B and C. Therefore it's a blank NATO. And he does this in like three movies that he shows up as this sort of like newsman on the scene. Who's going to like give you an update on like how the shark NATO is evolving as it travels around the world. Oh, well, so he's in this character's in multiple Sharknados. Yeah. And, and to the point where it doesn't even make sense because he <laughs> appears in the final Sharknado in a scene that's supposed to take place in the 1950s. Right. Um, and it's it, it, he's just still good with Godfrey. So I suppose you're supposed to imagine that, like, it's his father or something. And by the way, the, if you're a fan of cameos that that uh, Finn meets his parents and his mom is played by Tori Spelling, who is, of <laughs> course, a, a, a fellow 90210 alum. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's they've got that connection there too. Oh, so man. There's, a, there's a little Back to the Future homage. <laughs> oh, were they dating? And they were dating in nine hundred two one zero. Right. right, so like they were, they were like she's yeah. she's sort of like coming on to him, and he's like, "This is really, you know, this is like, you know, this is heavy, Doc." That kind of a thing. <laughs> it's not not wow. very subtle when they decide to make an illusion. Right. So, do you think this is actually the last Sharknado? Do you think they're really going to stop? You know, it's funny that like what I predicted at the end of sort of going into this, it was obvious like they're going to go back in time. By the way, I will tell you what well, one of my bitterest disappointments about this is, is that in the, at the end of Sharknado 5, the world has been destroyed and Finn is wandering a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Everyone he knows has been killed. And then like there's like a bolt of, of lightning and a time machine shows up. And inside the time machine is Dolph Lundgren. And Dolph <laughs> Lundgren plays his infant son who disappeared into a Sharknado earlier in the movie. And says that, like, he has grown up and, like, traveled back from the future to give him the time travel technology. And together, father and son will go back into the past. And I was incredibly pumped for more Dolph Lundgren. And they promptly write him out at the beginning by being like, oh, Dolph Lundgren didn't make the leap through time. You're on your own. Oh, Um, it would be more fun if he'd just been eaten by a shark the instant that he showed up after he gave him the time machine. But anyway, I I see what you mean. So that's, that's kind of sad. But anyway, continue, continue. Uh, I forgot. Wait, what was what? How did I begin the story before I went off on my? T- we my were tangent? talking about when does Sharknado over? Like you have the anticipation oh, right. of the next right, Sharknado. Right. So, so what I thought was going to happen is that there was going to be almost like a Shaggy Dog type ending where it's like they're, they they end up back in uh, Finn's bar at the very beginning, and the Sharknado, the very first Sharknado, has been sort of negated. So it's like it never happened, and uh, Finn and Nova sort of look at each other like I'm glad that's over, and then all of a sudden they look out the window and they're like, No, it can't be. It's an octopus NATO. <laughs> that was my, which is sort of like here we go again, but like maybe slightly differently this time. But it actually turns out to be like much more almost like straight straightforward uh cheese ball which is sort of like finn um all their memories are like the the timeline is reset in a way that nobody not even finn remembers that there ever was such a thing as a sharknado that they're all in the bar it's five so it's 2018 so it's it's, so it's as if they continued for their lives with five years and sharknado's never intervened so all the characters that are dead are still alive somehow finn and and, um tara reed have gotten back together even without the sharknado bringing them together which is interesting to think about how that works out and Finn is now selling the bar to Mark McGrath, literally to Mark McGrath. Who's oh, he comes, back. he comes back. Yeah, he comes. Oh, he good. comes back. Good. He's inheriting the bar, and sort of Finn before he like moves off with Tara Reed to sort of start their new life in the heartland, gives like a speech to everybody who 
who's basically every character from all the previous Sharknado movies who have gathered together to wish him well about how, like, you know, man, the last five years have been cra- – and, and it's it's sort of like it, – it, it is a very meta speech. Like, mm. what a crazy journey we've been on these last five years. Um, but, like, you know, we've always been there for each other, and we always will be. And, like, you know – yeah, I'm really proud to have known you all, and uh, you know, and then then he walks away. And the final thing that we see is Al Roker on the TV, who says that for the first time in human history, there's in fact uh, not a cloud in the sky over the entire United States, and everyone should go out and enjoy a sunny day. Wow! And um, Al Roker is eaten in Sharknado Three, right? So Al yes. Roker is back alive. <laughs> um, the entire so, Today so Show the, cast, including Kathy and, and uh, Hoda, breaking wine bottles and stabbing the sharks as they try to eat them. But no, anyway, 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 continue. No, there, there, so there's not there's not the slightest hint that like there is any sort of Sharknado threat. Now, obviously, uh, these are extremely creative writers. Um, and they have an extremely loose view of continuity, and there are any number of ways that they the, the Sharknado timeline could be shook up again if they wanted to. But right, right. Th- this certainly does not leave the door open for th- – there are no loose ends. Let's just say right. there's a hard reset on the entire universe that is that that has been pushed, and uh, we are now – and it's, in a way I found it kind of sad because like you have this guy, Finn, who – in 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 the A timeline was like basically a, a washed up surfer who was running like a a sort of a mediocre dive bar in Malibu and and Santa Monica whatever it is I I, I don't know my LA geography um, and then like you know over the course of the Sharknado movies he not only gets back together with his wife he forges like a much stronger relationship with his children who he's who he is estranged from at the beginning of the first Sharknado movie but he becomes like a worldwide celebrity as like a savior a messianic figure to the point where he meets the president he addresses the UN the Pope personally bestows like a holy weapon upon him um, and he like single handedly saves many thousands of people and like finds great, you know, although like, you know, encounters great tragedy, uh, becomes like a, a hero, uh, knowledge by all. And basically like, you know, because of the events of the final Sharknado movie, all that is negated. And that he goes back to like, I think what he's planning to do is start like a tree trimming business literally, because then it allows somebody to be like you with the chainsaw. I don't see it. Oh, but there man. is there is something kind of sad, or I don't know. Maybe it's not supposed to be sad. Maybe it's sort of like he would have gladly given all the adventure and all the celebrity and all the heroism up to have a quiet life, quiet blue collar life in Kansas, you know. And that like that that that's a choice that like isn't a tragic choice, but like a correct one is to to give up the the Sharknado craziness for like a John Cougar Mellencamp existence, right? Right. To give up and, the sharks for cougar. And so wait, and does Nova just go back to being a waitress? I think Nova goes to college. I think, I think <laughs> she literally says like, oh, thanks. Thank you, Finn, for the loan. Thank you for supporting me so I can like go off and get my education. I mean, um, isn't this all like metaphorical for the, the, the pro- sweep of progress of human c- civilization writ large, right? You know, in um, medieval times and, you know, and before – you know, the only way to self-actualize was through struggle and through warfare and combat uh, and sort of, at, you know, doing so at the expense of others or in, in very taxing times. And uh, isn't that the great thing about a prosperous, civilized society where you can self-actualize through education and, uh, and, and service jobs? I, I, I'm, I'm choosing to re- read this glasses <laughs> or, or this idea that like the the simulacrum world that gets destroyed by sharks is the world of kind of action fantasy and the world of action fantasy exists because the lives that we're living in every in our everyday day to day aren't satisfying us in some sort of elemental way in some sort of primary way and so we reach out to these worlds of fantasy which is just sort of part of what a human culture does but at the same time Right. Like, it's not like we would actually want to live in those worlds. Like, we yearn for that kind of transformation sometimes. This is like the old Fight Club argument. And you hear it a lot less often lately because the world's gotten so much more interesting than it was in 1996. But, uh, but, uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh, we had no, we have no great war. We have no great depression. We're lacking something. We're lacking some sort of transformation and some sort of maturity. And the idea of like, well, would you rather, would you rather be a schlub in peace or a, a you know, a, a chainsaw wielding shark slayer in war? And by the way, war is hell. So do you want to live in hell? Do you want a good seat in hell or a bad seat in the here and now? Right. And it's, it's really interesting to consider that, like, uh, it is that the Sharknado never happening is worse for a lot of people. 
but better in certain sort of specific ways. I don't know. And we may have to leave our conversation of Sharknado there for the night. Uh, but I, but I will do want to bring up one comment from last week uh, that John C. brought up when we in our conversation about Crazy Rich Asians, which, uh, you know, great movie. We had a fun time watching it. Matt, did you see Crazy Rich Asians? I didn't. I want to see it. I hear it's real funny. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Mark was leading some good conversation on there, posting some interesting follow up stuff. And John wanted to write in to uh, compare the movie justifiably to the systematic misreading of Pride and Prejudice. Right. And uh, the idea that um, that in Pride and Prejudice. Right. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here and, and speaking around it is that uh, that the, the wealth that's on exhibit in Pride and Prejudice is constantly being kind of mocked in Pride and Prejudice, but people reading Pride and Prejudice instead of glorify it, right? And are like, ooh, look how fancy everybody is. Uh, and and that the, uh, I think the way John puts it is, money doesn't seem to drive the plot or set the stakes, but seems to be more of a bread and circuses, people want money, show, show them money kind of mentality. Uh, I just think that's, a, that's an interesting note to hit, especially in light of something like, say, Breaking Bad, where some people enjoy it because they like the Heisenberg character and some people enjoy it because they see the tragic fall and the horribleness of the Heisenberg character. And these people can coexist and argue with each other. I mean, any, any final thoughts on sort of further discussion of crazy rich Asians or uh, wealth or kind of ironic or unironic uh, appreciation of fancy schmancy lifestyles? Uh, just to agree that you with you, what you said, Pete, is that the movie can be enjoyed in both ways. Like, Ooh, look at all this fancy stuff. And also, Ugh, look at all this fancy stuff. The yeah. world is big enough for both of those. And also, by the right. way, Crazy Rich Asians, still the number one movie in America. That's right. Representation, Asian Americans on screen. Yeah, let's have more of that. You know, they're lucky that Sharknado, It's About Time, only went to television. <laughs> so they would have given them a run for their money. <laughs> well, all that remains is to thank our Sharknado uh, aficionado and, and impassioned advocate, Matt. Thank you, Matt, for coming. We always love having you on the podcast. Thank Jeez. you. If they, if they do reboot, uh, we'll be here to cover it all. <laughs> we'll be on that wall, just like the uh, Semper Paratus, right? Semper Paratus, as they say in the Sharknado movies. Always be ready for flying sharks. And Mark, thank you as well. And I hope to see you next week. Uh, you won't see me next week, but it was my pleasure to be here. Oh, we're going to have another surprise cast. Well, you'll have to wait till then. <laughs> and if you need a fix between now and next week, please visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably a show about the cameos i have to call my mother i have to call my lawyer oh wow that wasn't over i gotta imagine they asked him right because he, <laughs> he was an independence day yeah yeah but you know he you know, died in like the same way he could have been like driving down like rodeo boulevard and like sharks just sort of fly out of nowhere and crash into his car you know you can't always get what you want <laughs> but if you try sometimes you can get what you eat